Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Incarcerated people are seeing worsening of their ability to obtain health care because of limits established to halt the dissemination of COVID-19 in jails and prisons. According to the Crime Report, many jails and prisons have undertaken strict lockdowns and in some cases are quarantining inmates in solitary confinement. However, those measures have resulted in diminishing or canceling regular checkups for inmates with non-COVID health problems, so regular essential preventative care is delayed or halted. Also, some outside medical professionals have declined to enter the facilities because of the risk of contracting COVID-19. Jails and prisons are risking inmates' mental health by ending work release programs, ceasing family visits, and placing COVID-positive inmates in solitary confinement. Not all communities have instituted such measures as mask wearing and social distancing, and so many rural and smaller jails and detention centers have a, quote, fragmented approach, unquote, to the pandemic, according to Thomas Weber, CEO of a company that provides health care in 80 jails and prisons across five states. Weber said, quote, the most overriding difficulty we've had, and this is one that affects not just corrections health care, but community health care, is the lack of clear guidance on a national level, unquote. And on that note, we now have a call from our coronavirus hotline about conditions in Seattle. All right, so right, basically I now have a book here since July 14th at FDC and CTAC, Seattle, Washington. They did not follow CDC guidelines at all until about oh, a week and a half ago, okay? So I was in a... Um, Segregated housing unit ZA26 for medical isolation, but based on CDC guidelines, medical isolation and punitive isolation should be separate. So they had me in uh, segregated housing unit under punitive isolation, even though it, CDC guidelines say medical isolation and punitive should be separate. So I was in isolation for 24 days, and they violated. I had court on July 28th. They denied me my legal visit. Uh, my court date was switched from July 20th to July 30th. COVID-19 did not come here until August, I think, 14th was when COVID-19. We had 43 cases in here, six inmates so far. That's what I know so far about COVID-19. Okay, I'm going to have him uh, say, some, say something about the conditions in here about COVID-19. Ain't here mess up, man. <laughs> they didn't want to fix our toilet. We had our toilet gone for at least 20 days. And nobody wanted to come help us. So that's one of the um, inmates in here. They shut up our commissary for two weeks. They gave us cold dinners for the last two weeks. We're supposed to get hot dinners, hot lunch and hot dinners. We've been getting cold dinners for the last two weeks and no commissary. No soap, no hand sanitizer, no. The tables are closed with tape, but no, we have not got nothing. We're asking for a detention hearing that people inmates be released. They're denying all motion detention hearings for people who have underlying health conditions. There's several people with underlying health conditions who are getting their detention and motion hearings denied by Judge Chief Martinez. They're refusing, Judge Chief they're refusing to listen to the Washington State of the law where it's exponentially required to those with underlying health conditions and sentences are not getting out. 
like the, the quarantine is only for today, but they're not letting people out who have underlying health issues. They're sitting here, and they're not giving us food. It's unhumanitarian treatment is what's going on in the here. And uh, we're not getting the, there's several inmates who are who qualified, who have diabetes, have obesity, have uh, Humira, have a Crohn's disease. There's several inmates of healthy conditions that are detrimental and they are highly susceptible to COVID-19. They're not even getting compassion. Let's call it from a federal prison. Conditions released or even uh, on bail. And uh, I'm not getting no detention hearings or out on bail or no home detention, even though I'm qualified. It's my first time ever in any federal detention. And I was booked during COVID-19. And my roommate was Manny Ellis, who was murdered by a couple of police officers. And they still haven't pressed charges on Manny Ellis' death. My, my number to write to me is 4996-0086. You can write letters and we will respond. And we're just like the world to know what's going on in the conditions of Seattle, Washington, and how we're being under humanitarian treatment by the government. And they're not following any CDC guidelines or releasing any means. We're not getting any commissary, and we're not getting out of there. Basically, they're starving us, they're locking us down, and there's no help for us in here. This week on KiteLine, we finish our talk with Keith Malik Washington. Malik was recently released from prison after many years and has been speaking with us about life on the outside and the importance of supporting those still behind the prison walls. You can find links to our previous episodes with Malik on our website, wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. And now here's Malik. I want to wrap this up and talk about something that a lot of people in the free world, they don't really understand. And it's the Interstate Compact Agreement. And this interstate compact agreement is an agreement that states have in which they have the ability to transfer a prisoner to any state at any time, whenever they feel like it. It is very rare that you have a prisoner who goes, bounces around from state to state. It's just, it's very rare. It's, it's very, very strange. And the reason why I mention this is that Kevin Rashid Johnson is originally from Virginia in the Richmond area. Years ago, Rashid was housed at Red Onion facility, Wallens Ridge. Uh, he was in his development um, and his political development and was writing many articles that shed light on the abuses that happened within Virginia prisons. And one day he was told to pack his things and he was being transferred, but he wasn't being transferred to another facility within the state. He was being kicked out the state, being transferred somewhere across the United States. Rashid Johnson was transferred to Oregon. When he arrived in Oregon, he was placed in general population. There was a false narrative and lies were told about him before he got to Oregon. And when he got there, Rashid had to address these lies and these false labels that were placed on him by the Oregon Department of Corrections administration. It got to the point where they threw Rashid in solitary confinement, threw him around guys that had some serious mental health issues, withheld proper medical care to Rashid, all kinds of different little abusive repression tactics in Oregon. Rashid expounded on it in some articles that he wrote. I believe one article was published in the Huffington Post, which is called the Huff Post now, but the Guardian, I believe, published maybe an article or two. Next thing you know, Rashid is told to pack his things again. And he's going on a plane trip. He's not going to another prison within Oregon. Next thing you know, June, well, I think it was 2013, 
Rashid pops up in Texas. Now remember, all of this is under the auspices of the Interstate Compact Agreement, but it seems like the only time Rashid is shipped out of the state is when he starts to shed light on the civil rights and human rights abuses that happen within the prison system. And the thing about it is, is Rashid has been transferred quite a number of times to different states. And it all has been behind his exposure of civil rights and human rights abuses. However, what happened in Texas was very, 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 very troubling. Rashid was shipped to a stale unit where he was treated horribly. There was a major down there named David M. Forrest at the time, June 2013. David M. Forrest threatened Rashid, told him that we were going to kill you. And you're not going to be doing any of that writing that you were doing wherever you were at. We are going to kill you. Rashid was eventually, he was shipped to a unit called the Bill Clements High Security Unit. When Rashid arrived at the Bill Clements High Security Unit, he noticed right away that the officers were some of the most abusive, racist, oppressive human beings that he ever met in his life. While Rashid was at the Bill Clements High Security Unit, he witnessed a number of prisoner deaths at the hands of Texas Department of Criminal Justice officers. Numerous prisoners mysteriously died at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice run Bill Clements Unit in Amarillo, Texas. Numerous prisoners. I can just rattle off the names. I even know the names off the top of my head. Theodore Schmerber, Christopher Wolverton, Alton Sterling, Joseph Arcade Como, come on, murdered by Texas Department of Criminal Justice employees. There was collusion, collusion between the coroner, the medical department, the wardens, the prosecutors, all covering up these deaths at Bill Clements unit. And as I was reading Rashid's articles and essays, article, essay, and essay after essay describing all of these deaths, I'm saying, where is the FBI Civil Rights Division? Where is the U.S. Department of Justice? Where is the authorities who stopped this type of heinous crimes that continue to happen in the state of Texas? Nothing ever happened. So there was a attorney who was fighting for the families whose loved ones were being murdered. The attorney's name was Jesse Quackenbush. And he did what he could to help these families who had lost their loved ones at the hands of these state actors at Bill Clements Unit, High Security Unit in Amarillo. Even Jesse Quackenbush was not immune of the retaliation from the state. During the time that Jesse Quackenbush was representing these families, his daughter was approached by a man who was allegedly mentally ill. The man sought to attack Jesse Quackenbush's daughter in Tennessee, a totally different state. When the man tried to attack Jesse Quackenbush's daughter, feared for her life, and she shot the man. I'm not trying to justify that. But what I'm saying is, is she was scared. I don't believe she killed the man. I believe she shot him in the stomach. He survived. But it was something funny. Now, Jesse Quackenbush's daughter is not black. She's not Hispanic. She's a white woman. And she was attacked by a homeless, mentally ill man. And I'm not saying that, the, that using gun violence is, is a way to repel an attacker. But she was scared. 
And something really remarkable happened. You know, in today's America, you, you would think that a, you know, in Trump's America, a white woman defending herself from a homeless man is probably going to get off, maybe be a slap on the wrist. No, that's not what happened to Jesse Quackenbush's daughter. She was charged with attempted murder by the attorney general in Tennessee. Now, I want you to look and think real deep about what I'm trying to tell you, that there is a good old boy system that exists amongst attorney generals all across the United States. You could probably infer that Jesse Quackenbush had made a few high-ranking members of the Texas government angry, and they may have given a phone call to their good friends in Tennessee. You see, not too long after that, Rashid was, just as that Rashid was about to become a material witness in some of these deaths that were going on in Bill Clements, Rashid was told to pack his stuff. He was moving and he was shipped to Florida. I want you to think now, Virginia, Oregon, Texas, Florida, and every time Rashid was transferred, he was subjected to degradation, dehumanization, mistreatment, and abuse. And he was even subjected to assassination attempts on his life. This has become a pattern. It keeps happening. And no one is paying attention. It is my hope that with this interview and this expose by Kite Line Radio, that perhaps we will be able to get the attention of lawyers at the American Civil Liberties Union. We've had some help by the National Lawyers Guild, but we need an outpouring of support and an outcry from the public to ask what exactly is going on with Kevin Rashid Johnson and why are Department of Corrections colluding, conspiring to kill this man? I think that it would actually start to get pushed out into the national conversation. And it's something that needs to be talked about as we head into the November presidential election cycle. What kind of America are we living in? I was subjected to a wide array of retaliation tactics for reporting about the conditions that exist inside Texas prisons and federal prisons also. But it wasn't so much pronounced at the federal prison that I was at at USP Pollock. But while I was in Texas, I was subjected to an over-the-top amount of harassment, retaliation, and repression at the hands of employees of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. The retaliation manifested itself in, a, in many ways. It manifested itself in many, many ways from mail disappearing, from my friends who wanted to come visit me, not being able to come visit me. I was, sometimes my food was poisoned. They actually put cleaning supplies in some of in the beans. I'm a Muslim. I don't eat pork, so I eat a lot of beans. And there was actually poison put in my food. You know, cleaning supplies was actually stirred up in my food. Um, I was uh, put around prisoners who had serious mental health issues, you know, with the intent of hopefully they would attack me. I was put around active white supremacist gang members with the, with the intent that they would attack me. Um, 
a lot of that didn't materialize. I actually ended up co-opting and bringing a lot of those prisoners, awakening them politically. Uh, but it was a constant struggle um, trying to get things out. I was always getting my house kicked in. It got so bad when I was in McConnell unit right before I made parole, there was an, a warden there named Philip C. Fuentes. And he actually, he didn't have to do this, but he actually ordered his officers to strip me naked every time I left the cell. And don't just strip me naked before I leave the cell, take a video camera and videotape me at the time. I, they could, I could not be pulled out my cell without a lieutenant coming to my cell with a video camera. I would be stripped naked before I could actually go out there and go out to wherever I was going, whether it would be wreck outside to the cage for an hour or to a shower. I would actually have to be stripped naked. It was so degrading. And as a Muslim, we want to cover our lower selves. We want to cover ourselves. And it's just like they were stripping me naked just constantly and laughing at me doing this. And it was just a very, very degrading thing to do. And it was all because I was shedding light on the abuses and civil rights abuses and the horrible conditions that currently exist in Texas prisons. Thankfully, with the help of Sloan Rucker and every, all the amazing people in my support group, I was able to get the attention of a Texas representative by the name of Jarvis Johnson and his chief of staff, Caitlin Caldwell. They actually did a little bit of research on my history and they found out that I was actually being subjected to these degradation and dehumanization tactics based on my advocacy for prisoners. And it actually, it manifested itself or actually came out came to the public eye behind a campaign that my comrades and I had done to try to get a prisoner who was in ad seg some time to hug his mom who was dying of uh, cancer. Her name was Paulina. And the prisoner's name was Miguel Flores, and he's an amazing artist. But um, Miguel was an ad seg. He was my neighbor. He wasn't allowed to have a contact visit with his mom. And one day he just asked me, he said, man, he said, my mom's dying of cancer. He said, and everybody keeps telling me that if, if I want to hug my mom, that you're the guy that can help me. Can you help me? And so I put, I asked my, my support network, starting with Professor Victor Wallace first, I said, Victor, will you please help me try to start a campaign so this guy can have just a hug, hug his mom before she dies? And uh, he said, yes, I'll help you. And then the next thing I know, Marissa, my comrade Marissa, who lives out here in California, who I can't wait to see, um, Marissa and um, Sloan. Sloan Rucker was amazing. Sloan Rucker is just super amazing, just beautiful human being and organizer and activist who currently lives in Texas. And um, she helped me and we were able to create a change.org petition. We even, we had people like Eileen Rivers from USA Today who kind of chimed in and got involved trying to help us facilitate this, but it, we couldn't, it really was Texas representative Jarvis Johnson and his chief of staff, Caitlin Caldwell, who really, really helped us push this to the, to the point where we were able to get Paulina and Miguel two hours to hug and say goodbye to each other before Paulina's um, would succumb from the cancer. However, I am here to say Paulina is still battling cancer, but she just got evicted from her apartment in Corpus Christi. And I just found this out. So um, I just said, man, I don't, I, I wish I could try to figure out how I can help 
from in here, but it's like just telling you about it. We might be able to shed some time. We might be able to get some help to her and get her some money or just get her into a place where she can shelter from, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, um, a lot, I was also labeled a, like an STG, a security threat group member and people uh, at the Fusion Center, the Central Texas Fusion Center and members of the Department of Homeland Security and others were actually working behind the scenes, directing the state of Texas in ways how to suppress, repress and harm me. And that was something that was something that got actually exposed when uh, we were attempting to do a Texas Public Information Act and the Attorney General's office was actually trying to hide the report that the Fusion Center had made about me. We want to see what are they saying about me that's making this warden treat me in such a way, stripping me naked and just messing with my mail like he was and throwing mail away and just really horrible repressive tactics by the state. And this is something that is a pervasive and systemic problem throughout the United States, but it's more so popular, especially with prisoners like myself who have become very, very politicized and active in their advocacy efforts. Man, there's so many stories that I can give you about the repression, but I survived it. And a lot of people are not going to survive it. Some people might commit suicide. I've had friends commit suicide. They couldn't, they couldn't take the pressure. They couldn't take it anymore. They, don't, they didn't have the support that I have. So it's important to support prisoners. If a prisoner tells you that he's being oppressed, that he's being abused, listen to him and try to do your best to amplify their voice so we can get them some help. And I'll tell you, I'll, before I go, I really want to talk about a strategy that I came up with that it works pretty good. And that I use different, I try to develop contacts with the media. I try to con create con relationships with legislators in the state. I tried to create relationships with activists. And I try to try to see if we have the empirical data to file successful lawsuits. So media, legislators, activists, lawsuits. That's a four-pronged strategy that I've used that works pretty well. And I'm hoping to teach it to other incarcerated individuals and other activists in the free world so we can come up with a model. Every situation is different, but we need to come up with a strategic plan to help combat the fascist state of affairs that are happening throughout the United States with prisoners. And it's just not right that we ignore the voices of people who are trapped behind the walls. So once again, I want to thank Kite Line Radio and my comrade and friend Mia for offering me the opportunity to speak with you today. And I hope to get another chance to speak to Kite Line and to our listeners all over the United States at various radio stations about the conditions inside the prison. However, I also want to talk about freedom and I want to talk about the work that we're doing at the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. I want to talk about the work of IWOC. I want to talk about the work of Oakland Abolition and Solidarity. I want to talk about the incredible work of Blue Ridge ABC. I want to talk about Sacramento IWOC also, who does do does amazing. I have a comrade named Cullen who is just amazing. And he has been very supportive since I've been out. And I want to, you know, so just amplify the voices of prisoners like Jaleel Mutakin, Imam Jamil Alameen, Mumia Abu Jamal, 
and just countless others who still languish in these slave pens across the United States. This is a poem that I wrote not too long ago, uh, maybe about maybe two months ago, and it's entitled 12 Years of Slave in Texas. And it's by me, Keith Malik Washington, and I'd like to share it with you. Toxic death flowing out the prison's water spigots, beat down and abused by racist bigots, Confederate gray uniforms they wear, open pride for white supremacy on display and laid bare. I remember all the hate campaigns launched against me, too much pain, sleepless nights, my mind not at ease. Finally granted parole in 2019, the creator of the universe heard my pleas. But what will become of the comrades left behind? From my desk at the Bayview, whom will I save? 12 long years in Texas, in Trump's new America, am I still considered a slave? I organized prison work strikes, asked for help, little came. Long-term solitary confinement was the punishment. Next door neighbor committed suicide, driven insane. In Huntsville, they had the gurney and the needle, poison forced into your veins. Senator Joan Huffman hid the identity of the pharmaceutical corporations. Senator John Whitmire clandestinely down with the games. 12 years a slave in Texas. Oh, y'all thought I forgot your names? In Texas, the warden conspires against you. The prison guard carries out the task. Ligature marks on our wrists and necks. Attorney General Ken Paxton has no questions to ask. Complicit. Governor Greg Abbott attacked the Panthers. Comrade Rashid and I resisted. Texas contacted the Fusion Center and they gladly aided and assisted. Anarchists and socialists came to our aid. 12 years in Texas and still a slave. There is a debt that must be paid. Prison slave laborers buried at central unit in mass graves, broken backs, whips and chains. Today in 2020, happy slaves in Texas still work for free, getting pimped and exploited under the church steeple. I tried my best to wake them up and transform them all into servants of the people. Snitches and rats informed on me. The police poisoned my food. All this and more for striving for righteousness and fighting for the greater good. Branded a black militant and extremist, every day I was facing hate. It is I, your comrade, Brother Malik, the real enemy of the state. 12 years a slave in Texas, no more tears, only laughter, getting ready for the next chapter. Freedom is sweet and love is pure, new bay. They did their damnedest to break me, baby, but with mutual aid and solidarity, I was able to endure. The COVID-19 pandemic has the future looking so unsure. 12 years a slave in Texas, a living testimony here I stand, here to show the world that even the people society throws away have the power and strength to heal our land. 12 years a slave in Texas, a slave no more I be. It is now time for all of us to unify and organize in order to set all the captives free. I'm going to wrap things up right there. And I want to thank Mia from KiteLine Radio. I want to thank all of my comrades and friends. I want to thank my fiance, Nube Brown, for being the person that she is. I want to thank Dr. Willie Ratcliffe 
and Sister Mary Ratcliffe of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. And before I go, I must ask you to please visit the Bayview website and donate something to this paper because we amplify the voices of prisoners all across the United States. We provide a voice for the voiceless. And we cannot do this work without any financial support. Even if 100,000 people just gave $1, if we could get 100,000 people to give $1, that would help so much. You don't have to give a whole lot. Just give a little something, something. It'll help us a lot. My name is Keith Malik Washington, and I thank you for your time. Take care of yourself. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.